Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Very excited today because... For those of you who are regular listeners, you know that way back in January, we actually did an entire show about this book, Who Gets In and Why, A Year Inside College Admissions. Um, And really, it was just the three hosts talking about this. Actually, I wasn't there. So it was two hosts and Shannon, one of our finance experts. But today, I'm very excited because we actually have the author, Jeff Salingo, joining us. Hi, Jeff. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're thrilled that you could join us. And um, as you know, we talked about this book, um, but we wanted to bring you on board to talk us through the book because there was no one closer to it than you. You lived it. And I have to say that my colleagues and I spent a lot of the time when we were reading this book saying, yes, thank you for saying that. I'm hoping people will read it. So I really want to do a shout out to our listeners to say, if you have not read this book, you should read this book. Um, But why don't you give us kind of a brief synopsis of what the book is all about? So what I really wanted to do, several years ago, I reread a book called Fast Food Nation. And for those listeners who may have read that book, it was a deep dive into an ecosystem that we are part of almost every day of our lives, in this case, fast food, but we probably really don't understand how it works. And the great thing about Fast Food Nation is it took us a deep dive into you know, the history of, of Carl's Jr. It took us into a, uh, a franchise of a, of, a, of a pizza, of a national pizza chain. It took us into uh, the slaughterhouse. It took us into a Idaho potato farm. It really took us through the entire ecosystem of, of fast food. And as I was reading that book, I realized that higher education in many ways, and specifically admissions, was also an ecosystem that we kind of dive into, but in many cases, we don't understand it, especially for parents and students who might be entering it for the first time or even the second or third time. They don't really quite get how it all works. And so after reading that book in the same summer, I reread uh, Jack Steinberg's book, The Gatekeepers, which followed admissions at Wesleyan University back in 2000. And as I was reading that book, I realized, wow, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, he did this book on Wesleyan. And I realized that it was probably worth an update. And I wanted to do an update in, in a similar way, which was to take readers through the ecosystem of college admissions through three big buckets of, of characters, one being the institutions themselves. So getting just like Jack did with Wesleyan, get inside yeah. uh, the college ad- admissions office. And in my case, three admissions offices at Emory, Davidson, and the University of Washington. Also follow a group of seniors who were applying to all different types of places, just to give a sense of, for readers to understand what families were going through, what students were going through, and what uh, counselors were going through. And then also, the third group is something that, that Jack didn't really get into, but again, a book like Fast Food Nation did, was all the influencers around the admissions process who are pulling levers in the background that parents and students 
probably never quite get um, or understand. And that includes the, you know, the marketing agencies, the testing agencies, all the consultants. If for those of you uh, listening to this podcast who go to the National Association of College Admissions Counselors, the NACAC, big NACAC uh, fair every year, uh, their big annual meeting, it's that exhibit hall and all the companies that exhibit within that yes. hall and all these places that are are all these entities that are, are pulling these levers in the background that parents and students don't quite understand. And so that's what I wanted to show is I wanted to show how those three groups of characters intersected over the course of an admissions year. Right. And, you know, I read the gatekeepers. I actually read the gatekeepers before I got into admissions and I found it totally fascinating. Um, and I do love that you were able to similarly kind of embed in the process because I also feel like, you can, if you're not seeing the process as it actually plays out, it's hard to understand how all of those other pieces ultimately interact in coming in the whole decision process. So I'm curious, obviously you, you went into this with some thoughts, you had read some books, you'd covered higher education. um, And, but what surprised you the most as you were going through the research for this book? Uh, a couple of things, uh, probably not one thing in general. So let me just go through a couple of qu- things quickly. First is that um, the how much the institutional priorities drive the admissions process. We like to think, I think, as applicants and as parents of applicants, that it's all about us. But it really is all about the institution uh, and the institutional priorities that decide how they choose a class, particularly at more selective colleges where they have more applications than they know what to do with. The second was just how deep and wide, especially again at selective colleges, these applicant pools are. I think that you know most of the parents and students that I met through this process talked all about what their kids have done or what they've been able to do within their school or their community. But what I didn't realize and what they don't realize is that how often that how that's replicated over and over again, not only across the U.S., but across the world in these applicant pools. And so there are so many more students like that student. You might think you're special, uh, but in reality, you're not because there's just so many more students in these pools in terms of how deep and wide they are. Uh, Third was around the marketing of of higher ed. Uh, You know, I understood that direct marketing and how institutions built up these pools of students to get them to apply and eventually accept them and eventually get them to enroll. I didn't realize just how, again, wide and deep these the, the marketing effort of these colleges were um, in buying names from the SAT and the ACT, sometimes dozens of times a name would be sold. Uh, and just the effort that institutions went through both with snail mail and email and other marketing uh, aspects to, to get these students to, uh, to apply and then eventually enroll. And then finally, the rankings. You know, I actually got my start um, at the U.S. News and World Report rankings in, in 1994. And one of the things I didn't quite appreciate until I started to dive into the research and in, into this book was how some selective colleges and, and one of the institutions I profile in the book, Northeastern, really made moving up in the rankings and institutional priority because they knew how much the rankings meant for admissions going forward. Uh, And so to really look back at a point in my life, you know, when I was still in college, interning at U.S. News and World Report, and to see how much those rankings influenced what institutional leaders did at some institutions in order to move up in those rankings because they were so important to the end consumer. So 
right at the start then what you're saying you were part of the problem initially partially (laughs) (laughs) i guess so but you know back in 94 i don't think anybody realized just how much but you know the rankings people paid attention to them back then but you know as i point out in the book I, i i have rankings going all the way back to the 80s the u.s news and world report rankings and when you look at those rankings it's like looking at a different time first of all there's yeah. many more public institutions in the top 25 but the even the acceptance rates back then in the early 1990s compared to today look like typos where you know the university of pennsylvania was accepting you know 40 45% of students back in the early 1990s yeah, it is. It's kind of crazy um, when you think about that. And often you will hear parents, I think they're kind of humble bragging when they say, I could never get in today. But I always want to say, no, you're right. You absolutely you could can. not. Um, <laughs> and I'm not humble bragging when I say that I absolutely would not have gotten into my alma mater if um, I was applying right now. I mean, the standards have changed so dramatically. And you know, we cannot seem to get away from rankings. It's too easy a thing to point to. But if you read the book and you do see how easy, it's not easy to manipulate, but how kind of scary it is if you think about an educational institution putting so much money into moving up in the rankings, money that could go to providing better education, better teachers, more resources, all of those things possibly to making the price cheaper and instead is going into these rankings and that are really, you know, you're basically letting someone else decide what criteria you should use to evaluate a school. And that's never a good idea either. And I think that's, you know, the point of the book is that I'm hoping that the readers who are mostly probably parents and students just become better consumers of the process. I think that sometimes we let colleges kind of dictate the terms of this because we think of them as, you know, educational institutions, you know, they're a public trust. They've been around for hundreds of years. We, we tend to, we're a little bit more differential to them than I think we should be when really at the end of the day, this is a purchasing decision that you're making just like you would when you buy a house or a car. Right. I mean, we talk a lot about the fact that you actually control so much of this process you know, what you write about, what you, you know, all of the choices that you make leading up to filing your application. And then the biggest choice of all, where you decide to apply. And yet so many go through the process feeling like exactly that. It's the colleges. It's all about what will they like? Will they like me? And, you know, will they choose me rather than do I like them? Do I really want to choose them? Do I really have the money to spend on this? Is it that much better? And, It was intriguing to me to see how the students that you followed towards the end kind of got there, but (laughs) it was a very painful process. No, I think they finally understood that so much of this game, and really at the end of the day is a game, is in favor of the colleges and, and universities. And they didn't quite understand that at the beginning of the process. And there were all these hoops they were jumping through for the colleges. And then that's when they realized, was it really worth it? Is this what I really wanted? Lar- again, and focused largely on the more selective institutions, because in the game of admissions, they control even more of the rules. Yeah, they do. It, it's, you know, it, it is anything that everybody wants. And then someone tells you, well, you might not be able to have that. I don't know what it is in human nature that just makes you go, well, that's what I want. I must have that because you're telling me I might not be able to. And it's a tough thing, um, but you you do highlight and you kind of just touched on this. College is a business. These are businesses. These are 
that is the first order of things for them. If they're going to stay in business, they need to function like businesses. And all of these things that you've already talked about, especially the marketing, points towards that, that really their goal is they have to enroll a certain class and it's all about the beds that they need to fill and the different constituencies they need to keep happy. And it, that's why you could tell someone till you're blue in the face. It really has nothing to do with you. But of course, you've just poured everything about yourself into this one application how can you feel any other way than that it's all about you? And, and, and right. And then one of the things I tell students and families all the time is just because a school has a 25% acceptance rate, for example, doesn't mean you as an individual have a one in four chance of getting in. You right. might have a 90% chance of getting in if you bring to the table everything that they want, or if you're like 10, tens of tens of dozens of other applicants, you have closer to a 0% chance because you're just like everybody else. And again, it's all on the institutional side. And we really make admissions, I think, too often kind of an indictment on how we parent or how the choices our, our kids have made throughout their lives. Well, if we only did one more activity, right? If we only took the SAT one more time, oh, if we only took that course, we decided not to take sophomore year that enabled us to take that course junior year. Again, it's all about getting in rather than what do we want to get out of this process? What do we want to learn? What do we want to, the bigger questions I think about life rather than just playing this game. And again, it is a game that you think, okay, check. I won. I got into that most selective college. And then you get there and you look around and you're like, is this what I want? Right. I, right. I describe it in the book about um, it's kind of like the, uh, at the rope line at a, at a, at a nightclub. And, and you think, well, I just have to get in that line yes. because there must be something really popular in that line. And then you get in and you're like, eh, I don't really like the music here, but now you're there, right? Because you won that game. Yeah, exactly. And yay. And everyone thinks you should be really happy. And then uh, there was one little, it was almost just in passing because these weren't students you had actually um, followed and we didn't know their names, but you you talk about there were a group of students who got their top choices. And when you followed up with them, we're sort of like, nah, I don't, you know, it's not that exciting to me. And I thought it was going to be something that it's not. Um, so Yeah. And, and largely those were students who were fulfilling somebody else's dream for them, right? Or yeah. were fulfilling expectations around, particularly around brand name, right? That they felt in their school that these set of institutions, these set of colleges and universities matter. And if I don't get into one of those, then I'm not worthy per se, right. uh, rather than again, pursuing the right fit uh, academically, socially, financially. Yeah. Well, with all of those things in mind, if, if you could identify one thing, or maybe it's not just one, maybe it's a few things that you'd really like families to do differently when they start this process, what would it be? Well, one is to widen the lens. There are more than 20, 25 good colleges and universities yes. in the country. And one of the most frustrating things that, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, the marketing, the marketing funnel that most colleges and universities have, it's pretty wide, right? When they go out and start recruiting, they're recruiting a pretty wide group of, of students and even less selective colleges, sometimes even wider than that. But students, when they approach this process, they don't start very wide with that funnel. They, they might start with a group of maybe 25, 30 uh, schools, colleges, universities they're interested in, and then narrow it from there rather than starting with 50 or 75 or 100, right? There are 
thousands of institutions in this in the US. And even if you say, okay, well, how about the four-year institutions, the ones that people know about, you're still probably talking about a universe of 1,200 to 1,400 schools, but yeah. yet students are starting with that small number uh, very early on. So I always encourage families Think about what type of institution you might want. Uh, and then don't worry about the names. You can fuss with the names later on. But do you want to go to a college in, a, in an urban area, suburban area, rural place? Do you want to go far away? Do you want to go close to home? Do you want to go to a big public university or a small liberal arts college? What are the differences between a research university and a teaching institution? These are all things that you can go visit, usually probably within a car ride of home, to get a sense of what these different types of colleges are then worry about the names later on. I think that we narrow our list too fast, too quickly. Um, and we think that, well, there's only these 20 colleges out there. And the problem is, especially at these pressure cooker high schools, is that we that, that list of 20 schools are pretty selective usually, and sometimes probably too selective yeah. for many of these students. And then they're, <clears throat> they're disappointed very quickly when they don't really fit. Um, and in many cases, they can't get in. Right. I mean, I think... That's a big thing that you kind of highlight is just the narrow perspective, even the narrow perspective you have. And you you talked about this a little bit earlier, just about, well, I'm a top student at my school. Well, how many other high schools are there, not only in this country, but also in the world? And there are top students everywhere. And, you know, it, it is it's hard to explain to someone who's worked really hard and is very bright that, yeah, you're great, but. I don't think this group of schools is really going to be a possibility for you. And it's not because we, you can't do the work. It's simply because there's so much more demand for those spots. And what you have accomplished, while lovely, is not going to move the needle there. And I would say most of the time they don't believe us either. And that's another challenge, right? It's, you're sort of like, well, I think this is really what's going to happen. Well, I want to take a shot. And then you know, what happens there is you press the button. And as soon as you submit your application, you really start to believe it's going to happen. And then when it doesn't, it is shocking. No matter how many times you have heard, it's probably not, you think it is, right? So, and and that is, that's a tricky thing. Um, one of the other things you highlight quite a bit in the book is the whole concept of, wouldn't it be nice if we knew what we were going to pay before we actually committed to these schools. And um, in, in fact, at least one of the students that you follow, how much the, her parents can afford is a big component that they don't talk about until after she has applied and has her options. And we see that a lot. Yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that part. Yeah, so this happens so often. You know, I end up focusing on three students in the book, but I ended up following a much larger group than that. And and among the group that I followed, there is this inability, I think, for some families to talk about money seriously. And I understand this because, in some ways, you haven't had a big purchase that involved your kids up until this point, um, and so often you're you're not talking honestly about um, about money and how much you want to spend on on college, but also just like admissions is a black box, paying for college is a black box. Yes. And so sometimes you say, well, let's worry about getting in first and then we'll worry about a pain. But so often in April of their senior year, after these students have their acceptance offers, they would be getting their financial aid packages and, and they would be shocked at how little they got. Um, and, and for some parents, they couldn't afford it or didn't want to pay uh, the prices that they were expecting, even at these 
pretty good schools or very good schools in some cases. And so I really came up with that was what led me to this concept, which I explained in the book that in admissions, colleges are either buyers or sellers. Um, The sellers are the halves of admissions, right? They have, they have something to sell that consumers want typically a, a brand name that signals prestige in the job market and social circles. They're the ones overwhelmed with applications, many from top students, their admissions officers, you know, see their role as gatekeepers, right? These are essentially the top ranked institutions, you know, Stanford, Amherst, Yale, uh, among others, very small group of institutions. We're probably talking about 50 or 60 sellers overall. The vast majority of colleges or universities are, are buyers and they're really the have nots of admissions. Although by the way, and I, I want to be very clear about this, they might provide an excellent and in some cases a better undergraduate education than even the sellers, but they just lack maybe the national or international reputations. They have much smaller endowments and rather than select a class, their admissions officers must really work hard in some cases to recruit students to fill classroom seats and beds and dorm rooms. So they offer coupons, essentially, you know, what we call merit scholarships or really discounts on, right. on, on tuition, no matter your family income. And that's the key here is that the buyers give out a lot more in merit aid uh, where the sellers don't have to. And so most of the, it's not that the sellers are not generous with financial aid. In fact, they're very generous, mm-hmm. but all of that money goes to mostly need-based aid because most of the students who can afford to go there, or they think you can afford to go there, they're the ones who will pay because they believe there's value in these in these sellers. And so what ends up happening is that these parents who maybe just don't quite, they make too much to qualify for need-based data to sellers, but they don't quite make enough to easily write that big check for four years. That's when the rubber really meets the road here and they get these financial aid offers and they're like, wait a second, you know, what <laughs> yeah. happened to that merit scholarship that everybody talks about? Well, these schools don't need to offer it to people like you, because by the way, they have 10 others who are willing to pay the, the full price. And that is, if you know kind of this idea of the buyers and sellers up front, when you're thinking about balancing your list about where to apply and, and money is important to you and you may not qualify for need-based aid, you need to look more at these buyers. Right. No, I, I don't think we could stress that enough because it would, in my mind, but I have been doing this for 19 years, in my mind, it would stand to reason that the place that everyone wants that you have to fight tooth and nail to get to is not going to discount the tuition for you. Why would they do that? Right. If you they don't have to pay? give you that coupon. Right. Exactly. Or yeah, well, why would you do that? If I walk in to buy a Mercedes, they're not giving me money off. They're assuming, well, you can afford one because otherwise, why would you be here? And you're going to pay because you want that logo on your car. But um, there are so many institutions where they will give you coupons and they will take the, the price down for you. But as with anything, you, you know, the reaction is, well, but that's not where I want to go. But you need to, I love this idea of buyers and sellers. My son is a junior. We are going through the process right now. And we are starting with what is financially feasible for us. And my son is aware of what that number is, of how much I will pay, of how much his father will pay. We're divorced, which adds an extra layer to this. And we are completely approaching this from the perspective of we are looking for buyers and not sellers because that's the way it's going to be uh, a possibility for him to go to a school beyond just the local institution, which will be fine if that's where he winds up. But 
if he wants to have other options, we need to look at it that way. And to me, that is one of the most important components in your book. Right. And I think one of the important points here is that there's a lot of similarities between buyers and sellers academically, right? So yes. like, as I point out, you know, Emery is a seller, a Tulane is a buyer, a Case Western is a buyer, where a Carnegie Mellon is a seller, right? But if you look at the rankings of those four institutions, for example, there's not a huge difference in where they're ranked academically. So, uh, you know, again, there's, there are differences, but they're not, we're not talking about, oh, all the sellers are top 20 institutions and all the buyers are ranked, you know, 200 and, and beyond. Right. There's, there's a lot of overlap between these institutions. And so it really requires uh, families to really think about the financial fit as well as the academic and social fit. Yeah, exactly. I just, it's such an important component. So unless you are a family and what we've learned about our listeners over time is for the most, the vast majority of them, they aren't writing a check for $75,000, $80,000 a year. And so we really just, you know, you have to talk about it. You don't have to do all buyers versus sellers, but you have to be realistic and if you're not realistic from the outset, it's a disaster when later on, if your child is lucky enough to get into one of these schools and then you can't afford it, I see people doing really dumb things because, well, they work so hard, they've earned it. Um, you know, we don't talk about it that way in our house at all. Uh, I believe my son is working towards a great college education and he will earn the education that he gets and it will be good there are a lot of places where he's going to be able to go and get a great education. And, um, and that's kind of what we socialize in our house. And, you know, this is from someone who worked for an Ivy league institution, attended an Ivy league institution. I am, he has lots of opportunities. He doesn't need that. And I don't think that's going to be a game changer for him. So, um, you talk a little bit about that, too, about the idea that a lot of times the people who are so hell bent on getting to these schools because they feel their kids need the contacts are probably the kids who least need the contacts. Um, right. I mean, it is the right. I talk at near the end of the book about outcomes and, and, and there's a lot more overlap again between outcomes of, you know, for example, big public universities and, and more prestigious private universities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a student graduating in computer science from Duke might actually have very similar uh, salary outcomes the first year out as somebody who graduated from the University of Illinois, uh, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but also around, this is, I think, where family income really matters, is that families whose parents went to college, the, where the parents went to college, uh, they, you know, are upper middle income, upper income families who have a lot of social capital to help their students along. And there's a number of studies I quote in the book where those are parents, no matter where their son or daughter goes, are going to be able to nudge them along in school. They're going to be able to help them find the internships that they need to find. They're going to be, they're going to be fine because they're going to be able to tap into those social and professional networks that their parents have, where that's not the case, for example, if you don't have those networks. Right. So going then to a highly selective school where those networks are are built for you, are already apparent to you, that's much more important for those students um, than it is for the students whose parents went to college, have great jobs, and, and have the connections that will help their son or daughter do well no matter where they go. Right, exactly. And I, I 
couldn't agree more with that. Um, and I think it's so very true. Um, all right, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the book, but also about um, the outcomes that we're seeing this year and some of the conversations that you're having with enrollment managers. So uh, don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm here with Jeff Salingo, who wrote this great book, Who Gets In and Why? A Year in College Admissions. If you haven't read it, please pick it up, uh, if, especially if you're going through this process. Even if you think you know, I'm telling you, you don't. And there's a lot of really good information in here that will help you better understand what's going on. Um, all right, Jeff. So before the break, we were talking about buyers and sellers, and this is the time of the year when you learn a little bit more about who's a buyer, who's a seller, but also students have received their decisions. They're all in. And, um, you know, we're seeing some things. I'm not going to say that I'm overly surprised with some of the results that we're seeing coming back. I, I, it's a crazy year. It's the worst that I've seen in the 19 years that I've been doing this. You've been talking to a lot of enrollment managers. I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of the things that you are hearing um, as you talk to them. Well, this is definitely a year unlike any other, particularly among you know the big brand name institutions, publics, privates, more selective institutions, overwhelmed with applications. Yes. I mean, the numbers are the number of increases in applications is in some ways just really unprecedented uh, year o- over year. And what basically happened is given students were essentially stuck at home, they couldn't go tour colleges. Most colleges were test optional. Uh, students just flooded the zone with more applications uh, because they couldn't go to see campuses. So they didn't really want to start to knock schools off their list. And some people said, hey, Harvard is test optional. Why not apply there? And yes. so you started to see just essentially the same number of students 
apply more often to different um, different places. I think that the probably the biggest you know kind of unknown this year was was test optional because you had all of these schools six hundred plus go test optional for the pandemic and and the application. And not only did you see the surge in applications, but now you had. A, a group of admissions officers evaluating applications for the first time in a test optional world who are not really prepared for it, right? Because most of the schools that went test optional did so because of the pandemic, not because they had been preparing for this uh, for years. And yes, they did training and things like that, but this was a, you know, they were essentially thrown into the mix of uh, these admissions officers of trying to evaluate the applications. And so the interesting number that I've been trying to get at since uh, decisions have come out over the last couple of weeks is I've been calling up enrollment deans and I've been saying, okay, tell me what percentage of your applicants were test optional and what percentage uh, got accepted test optional. I think this is a question that every parent wants to know. Are you really test optional? Yes. It's interesting. So not many people are telling me those numbers. Uh, if they do, they might tell me one number. They might be very proud. Like Penn was, you know, 26% of our admitted students did not submit a test score. So then I call Penn and I say, okay, well, what percentage applied test optional? It's kind of a number you need. Um, and they won't give it up. Um, some schools are not giving out any numbers. I talked to a Dean at a, uh, at a, a selective big public. Um, and, and one of the reasons they don't want to give it out is because there's not a lot of context for the numbers. So for example, at this institution, whether you had a test score or not differed by residency status, differed by income, differed mm-hmm. by major. So there's just, the numbers are all over the place. And so if you just say, percentage test optional, percentage not test optional, percentage accepted test optional, it doesn't give you that context for who actually submitted scores and, and who didn't. Right. I, and actually, I just want to quickly mention there's there's a section in the book where you talk about admission standard. And I actually pulled the quote, which is admission standards aren't applied consistently because they're applied in context. And that's a great example of that, right? You can't just give here's the number because it doesn't provide all of that other context that goes along with it. And context is everything in college admission. So just yeah. want to throw that out there. Yeah. And, and, and essentially what I think we saw this year, and, and this is my advice for students as we go into the next year, which is also going to be a big year for test optional is that, you know, if the, if the test score, you know, think about your application as a case for getting in, uh, you know, it's, you're arguing a case for why you should get in. And if you feel like, the rest of your application is incredibly strong without a test score, then, and you don't think you're going to do well on that test or you haven't done well on that test, then you probably shouldn't submit that score. But know, by the way, that a lot of people are submitting scores uh, who have good scores and, and, and that just helps their case. And, and perhaps in, especially in these competitive institutions and competitive majors might push them a little further ahead because it's one more signal uh, that they're ready to, to do that work. Right. I mean, I, it, what is interesting to me about this is that people, I've seen some blogs come out and I've heard people talking about this, that the idea that especially at the most selective level, you should really do testing. And I am actually would disagree with that entirely. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, my son is looking at buyers. He is looking also at large state schools where they, in my opinion, are not really well prepared to evaluate applications without test scores. He can test safely, therefore he is testing. If um, I think if you're applying, when I was doing admissions at Penn, it would not have been difficult for us to admit a class without test scores. It just wouldn't 
because as again you lay out in the book it's shocking how less important they are in the process than you think if they're there they better be good but we could easily have determined who really were the top kids without those test scores so i think that's kind of the ironic thing here is it is the least necessary at those offices also where they have bigger staffs and they're able to get through more of those applications at that point. Yeah. And I think a great anecdote that Rick Clark is the uh, director of admissions at Georgia Tech told me uh, is that among their test options, the students who did not submit test scores in their pool, Mm -hmm. 93% of them had calculus in high school, right? So there was a, there was signals, you know, in a very advanced math that, you know, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily need to take to, in order to take the SAT, for example. So here was a signal uh, of, of, of from somebody's transcript that was maybe in some ways a stronger signal than a test score would have right. been. And those students, by the way, who submitted test scores had really high test scores. So in some ways, it didn't tell them anything else because right. the test score was high. So what is it going to tell them, right? It, did, it didn't give it much distinction uh, between those, those students. Right. And they had taken the class and they also could see the grade that they yeah. earned in that class. And I think there's a lot out there that people who want testing, frequently people whose kids are good testers or they were really good testers are the ones that I find most adamant about this. You know, they want it to matter more than it does, but really what matters most is what you've done in the high school. And yes, not all high schools are equal and not all grades are equal, but there's a lot you could tell from a transcript that is much more helpful and insightful than than a random test score, is my experience anyway. Yeah. So um, and what are you learning, if anything, because the watchword of the day here is waitlist, 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 waitlist. (laughs) Um, you, you do talk in the book about how, and I love when I hear the admissions people, well, it would be a softer landing. I was not that kind of admissions person. I really felt like if we're not taking this kid, we should just say, sorry, we're not taking this kid and not give them a really nice no, which is often what a wait list is. What's your sense? Do you think we're going to see movement this year? Yeah. And let's start there just about this idea of the wait list. Because when I think of a wait list, if I'm a parent or student, I think, oh, I'm, I went to a popular restaurant and they're, uh, they've, you know, the, all the tables are filled and I'm going to go on a wait list, right? Yes. Um, really, this is not that type of wait list. This is no. much more like uh, the, the wait list or the, the way airlines oversell seats because they know some people are not going to show up, right? So they build it into the model. Mm-hmm. In other words, many of these selective schools schools sometimes are are uh, in, uh, admitting fewer students because they, they know they're going to go to their wait list. They build these very big wait lists uh, because it is, as you said, a, a potentially, as I heard so often, a softer landing to tell yeah. students, especially legacies, for example, oh, you got waitlisted instead of outright uh, denied. And the waitlist at some of these schools is essentially bigger than the entire yes. freshman class that they're waiting for. Um, and you have no idea where you're on that waitlist. Uh, and again, institutional priorities make a difference, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to pull people from that waitlist that I really need. Um, and that's what's going to happen this year. So, you know, because so many students apply to so many schools, the old models of yield, yield meaning the percentage of students who accept your offer of acceptance, those models are, are not exactly clear uh, this year because there, there's so much noise in the system. And so many schools built up much bigger wait lists. And one of the things I'm hearing from talking to enrollment deans is they're going to go to that wait list probably more often mm-hmm. this year, but also earlier. They're going to start calling 
as soon as they start to see where their numbers are trending in terms of deposits, in terms of those students saying, yes, I'm going to take you up on your offer of acceptance. If those numbers aren't trending where they want them to be, they're going to start pulling students uh, from that wait list much earlier because they don't want to lose them to some other school who might do that two days later or four days later right. or something like that. Right. And um, I could tell you we're already seeing it. If you follow me on Twitter, I've been tweeting about it. I, I have, but I mean, one in particular that struck me, NYU was going to their wait list the day after decisions were announced. Like, all right, well, I don't know what they already knew at that point or were they holding back and they just, you know, wanted to roll those out. I don't know. But that to me was... Slightly shocking. I have not seen that before, but um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's another round of admissions, right? Yes. Just like early decision uh, is is a round of it, you know, of admissions early on. This mm-hmm. is almost like late admissions, right? It's like a, it's yeah. another round of admissions after regular decision, right? Exactly. And at some schools, the way that they uh, tally up their institutional data. For rankings means that if you admit a kid off the wait list, it doesn't have to factor into yes. your admitted statistics. So, And that's really important, especially if you're worried about yield, right? So yes. you could really, you know, juice your numbers a little bit by admitting more students off the wait list because you have to admit fewer students up front. Because the other thing about the wait list is that if you go to a student on the wait list, you know, the chances are you're probably going to get that student um, if they've agreed to be on the wait list. So right. again, it's almost like early decision where you're you're yielding those students at a much higher level because you're offering so few spots out there. Right. And of course, one of the dirty secrets, not everywhere, but at some schools, is that um, for the waitlist students, there isn't necessarily money. Yep. So, you know, you're going, you're pulling the people off the list who are um, full pay. Full pay. It's another way in which, unfortunately, that middle gets kind of screwed. And um, those who are who don't have money at all really also very much get screwed. But yeah, because I think the idea, merely the act of saying to a student, we're not admitting you, we're putting you on the waitlist. And then when you go to pull them off, they're so excited because you had originally said no. And now you're saying yes. And it's, again, that ridiculous thing about... Well, I can't have it, so I want it more. Why? We all need to work on that and not be like that so much. Um, right. So basically, bottom line is we really don't know what's going to happen with wait lists this year. Um, I, we were talking during the break, and I was sharing that anecdotally. One of the things that I have seen is some students not getting any of those highly selectives that they were shooting for, and some students getting all of them. And of course, you can only go to one school. So if our tiny um, section of students that we know about, if that's happening to them, I do wonder what is that going to mean for yield at some of these selective schools and I'm putting false hope out there and I apologize, but you know, you never you know, know. clearly there's going to be downstream impact of this. And, it's, yes. and this is why in so many ways, as I'm talking to enrollment deans, I'm like, Oh, well, this will all be over in a couple of weeks. And they're like, no way. <laughs> this is going to be going well into the summer where things are just going to be much more fluid in some ways, like last year, much more fluid um, going into into the summer as they try to lock down that class. Right. Well, and then the other thing that um, happened that we didn't really feel the full effect of, I don't think last year was that the uh, NACAC, which is that national organization you mentioned, the conference, but they had to get rid of some of their ethical guidelines are surrounding, you know, how actively you could market and pursue students And so the other thing that we might start seeing, too, are colleges going after students who have deposited elsewhere, offering more and more money, those being the buyers, um, 
But, you know, again, to our listeners, this is not something Yale is going to be doing, right? The, the colleges pursuing you are not going to be the ones necessarily that you want, but they might make it so attractive from a financial perspective that it might you might steal people from other colleges. So that will be an interesting thing to see play out. Um, I'm curious what your, your sense is. This has been really two crazy years because the year prior was Varsity Blues, which didn't really impact things, although I did see the impact a little bit in terms of families who maybe were connected. That that might have come through in the past, definitely not coming through this year. Um, and then obviously this year was insane. What do you think is going to stick for the future? Um, well, that's an interesting question. I think the uh... – First of all, I think we're going to probably see another year, probably not as crazy as this year, but think about it, right? We have uh, still hundreds of colleges that will be test optional, at least for another mm -hmm. year. It's interesting that the class of 2022, when you think about the impact of the pandemic on their high school career, might be the largest out of the last three classes, right? Because yeah. it was the middle of their sophomore year that was interrupted. Most of their junior year, which is really the apex of their high school career when it comes to college applications, incredibly disrupted for many students. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they're going into their senior year, which may be somewhat normal, but they're going to start applying to colleges soon into that year. So I think we're going to see another year of, of disruption. Uh, and then the question I have for the longer term is, first of all, how many colleges go back to requiring tests? I, th yeah. I think we will see uh, probably a decent number, but I don't think we're going to see 600 that when test optional during the pandemic suddenly go back. I think also, what if colleges and universities learned about their application process during this? In other words, all of all these signals that you get about a student's potential in the application, what really matters? And I think mm -hmm. during the pandemic, there have been a lot of discussions about do we need to ask for everything that we're asking for? And I think you might see some colleges or, or universities rethink um, how they approach the application and, and their selection uh, process. But I think the biggest question mark coming out of the pandemic is going to be testing. Who's yep. going back? Who's going to be test optional? And even more important, perhaps, test blind and not use the tests at all. Yeah, I, it, that to me is super intriguing. I actually thought that we might see some of the most selectives, especially the Harvards of the world who are being, you know, they're in court over this, um, you know, are they discriminating? I really thought that we might start to see some of those schools who really want to make the decisions they want to make, make test scores optional, because then it would allow them even more leeway to make the decisions that they want to make and admit whomever they want and not have to be held to explain why you're turning these students with perfect scores down and instead admitting these students with less than perfect scores. And they can just say, well, we didn't have scores for everyone, so it's not that important part of our process anymore, and we don't worry about that. Um, and, I, you know, to me, it feels like why would they go back to requiring those those tests? No, as, as an admissions dean told me, uh, they think that the test optional gives uh, admissions deans everywhere the excuse to lean even more into their institutional priorities because they don't have to have that test kind of holding them up, but they still get enough test scores. I mean, that's the thing, right? You know, that at, even at these test optional schools, because there's a certain group of parents and students who think they need to submit a score, you're still going to get a decent uh, chunk of students submitting scores. And so you can kind of craft your class 
in, in a way that you couldn't craft it before because you could be taking a group of students that really lead to your institutional priorities without scores on one hand, and on the other hand, continuing to lean into those students who score really well and you need more of, whether they're full-pay students or students that fit some other in- sort of institutional priority. Right, exactly. If you can get the word out there, hey, if your scores aren't in this range, then just don't send them. Um, because if they're there, they have to be considered. If you don't submit them, then they can be, you know, and I think too many times families worry, well, if I don't submit them, they're going to assume they're really bad. Not really. If you don't submit them, their assumption is great. Those weren't going to add. We're going to just look at what you did submit to us. And then they don't have to admit you in spite of test scores, they can just have that not be something they have to worry about. Um, Yeah, so I'm with you there. I just, I think you're right. I think some schools are going to bring them back, but I just think the more selective, the less likely, in my opinion, that they are actually going to ever go back to requiring test scores. Yeah, I think a lot of things will will play into this. I think politics will play into this at some Mm -hmm. public universities where the state legislature might step in and and not require them or require them, depending Mm -hmm. on what kind of state they're in. I think faculty, especially at selective universities, some faculty love uh, uh, test scores, specifically in, you know, STEM fields and and things like that. So I think, I think the, and alums and boards will play Mm -hmm. into this as well, right? Because I think there's a lot of alumni out there say, hey, I took this test. Why shouldn't today's students take that test? Again, they make up a large portion of the of the board. So I think there's going to be a lot of local factors as well playing into whether a school goes back uh, test option, whether schools go back testing or not. Right. Well, and then there are some schools who are really kicking and screaming into test optional and you have Charlie Deacon in your book and he is one I would absolutely <laughs> highlight. Uh, he you know, loves the test. Oh, he loves the test. He is not giving those up. If you, you know, if as soon as they cannot be test optional, as long as Charlie is their dean, I don't believe you will see Georgetown as test optional. No, and I think you're going to see some of these deans who I've talked with who uh, really, they understand the context of the test and they understand mm-hmm. its weaknesses, but they still like it for various reasons. I think they're yes. going to go back uh, either requiring it or they will definitely stay test optional. Uh, going forward. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, at the very least, they're certainly not going to go test blind, many yep. of these schools. And, um, you know, I think that's a really, you mentioned the states and what's really interesting to me, right? Here you have California's legislature saying, you go test blind, this is a discriminatory practice discriminatory. And then you have Florida's. I know. Who doesn't even want to go test options? No, you weren't a pandemic. Too bad. Yep. Yeah. So it is, it's crazy to see that. And we have the example right there of it playing out. So I think, you know, if Florida, that is not a school system where you are likely to see them go test optional for a good long while, if ever. Um, What will be interesting too over the years is to see, I mean, the UCs had already decided we are going to phase out the ACT and the SAT, but we're also going to look at creating our own test and phasing that in. And so it'll be interesting to see if they actually do follow through and do that, or if this forced test blind situation kind of causes them to say, well, wait a second, I don't know, maybe we really don't need these test scores. Um, You know, I don't know. It's always the idea has supposedly been it's an apples to apples comparison, whereas when you're trying to compare high schools, it's more like apples to oranges. But is it right? Because we know that the test favors students who have the means to prep for it and who grow up in a certain, um, you know, area and, and the way they're brought up really impacts how they 
see the test and how they process the test. And, and it's really, it's a real limiter on applications. And yes. so, uh, you know, and that's good and bad to that, right? So I think some institutions might bring back testing because they, they love more applications, but they don't want to see the tens yes. of thousands of extra applications they got this year. Right. And so putting testing back as a requirement actually will depress those, uh, those numbers. On the other side, you have students who, who applied this year and, and are highly qualified for these institutions. And the one thing that was stopping them in past years was that test score yes. because they would look at that middle 50% number and they would say, you know what, I don't have that test score, so I'm not going to apply. Meanwhile, the rest of their, uh, of their application was terrific and, uh, and they probably would have been accepted without that test score. Right. I'm curious if you have a sense for, so of course, as an admissions dean, your goal it may not be your goal, but you know, more applications is always good. They're always brag when there are more applications. What do you think the appetite's going to be if this is all over and those applications start to settle well back down to where they were before the pandemic? I, 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 I think there will. will be relief in some yeah. ways, and I think they can explain it away, right? Like, again, no admissions dean wants to put out that press release saying application dropped. Right. But if it's like dropping mostly for everybody and they can say, well, you know, we had this pandemic induced increase. So we're kind of going back to historical numbers. As long as that number doesn't fall below what it was before the pandemic, I think it's easy to explain that away. And again, they probably want that in some ways. It was really hard. You saw, you know, the Ivies and other highly selectives push back their notification dates this year yeah. because they just had such a hard time uh, reading all these applications in time. And I don't think any of them really want to be overwhelmed like that. So I think they would actually like it to go back to the historical numbers that they had before the pandemic. Right. And if they if they don't, then they probably at the very least, they're going to have to hire more people, because yeah. I think probably what they realized is this isn't tenable. We we you know, I mean, when I was reading files, it was a seven day a week proposition. And I was still reading from, you know, pretty early in the morning until later, depending if I took an hour for dinner to spend some time with my family. So all those additional applications on top of that starts to become problematic. Um, Jeff, any last thoughts that you wanted to leave our listeners with? I'm going to put the book up again. Why? <laughs> Who gets in and why? Great book. I encourage people to pick it up. But any last thoughts for our listeners? I mean, obviously, the pandemic has changed the process a little bit for for students. But in the in the grand scheme of things, you know, especially at these selective colleges, holistic admissions, looking at all the pieces of the application from the the courses you took, the grades you got, uh, the recommendations, the essays, all that still matters. And so I want I think it's important for applicants to understand, yes, COVID-19 upended the admissions process. But in some ways around the edges, some of this may stick as we talked about, but for the most part, still focus on what you could control in this process. These other things, whether they're test optional or not, for example, whether you had those activities or not, that's kind of out of your control. Uh, focus on what you can, particularly around your courses and grades, because that's what matters. Right. And I uh, further, I would add is how you translate it, that into your application also matters. And you have some really good information about that, you know, just students not providing enough context. And as a result, the admissions office is kind of having to say, well, we don't know. So we're going to pass. But then when the students do take the time to add a little bit more context around an activity, for example, then they do know and they can consider that information. So um, all really great advice. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. It was great to be with you. Thank you. 
Oh, absolutely. All right. So next week, Sally is going to be hosting. I think Sally. No, I'm wrong. Ian is going to be hosting and he's going to be talking about gap years very much on people's mind this year. Um, we're also going to be talking about if you are hoping to be a recruited athlete, some things that you should be thinking about right now, and also project management for parents so that maybe you can help with the process in appropriate ways, but let your kids drive the bus. We're going to be talking about that. Um, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. So if you found this podcast to be really helpful, please take a minute and leave a review for us. Um, and then if you have questions for us, you can send them to us on Facebook, on Instagram at at collegecoachbh or at elizabethheaton92, or you can email them to us at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.